We continue on in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we've been doing this journey, and it's going to be a long journey. And actually, Mark is one of the shorter Gospels. So, uh, but we 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 kind of said and felt it was time to go back, and we've been saying that time to go back to the beginning, time to go back and revisit. And actually, I was thinking this week about the Alpha programs, and that's actually what the Alpha program is. Our youth have been working on the Alpha Wednesday nights. Some of our adults have been working on the Alpha, and the Alpha is the basics of the faith. And the whole idea of Alpha is that you learn the basics of the faith so you can share your faith with others, right? Alpha brought revival to the church uh, the Anglican Church, the Church of England, and in England, it just it just went right through the church, and and it brought revival and renewal. And so, um, it's just so important for us sometimes to go back to the basics, back to the story, back to what it's all about. And so that's what we've been doing through the Gospel of Mark. And you heard today's uh, reading. I believe I have that on. Yes, I do. Uh, and. Uh, it's not moving. Are we frozen? Don't tell me we're the frozen chosen. We don't want that. So um, I, I, I was thinking today, today we're looking at about opposition. Not one of the most favorite subjects in the church. Uh, about opposition, facing opposition. And uh, I was thinking about my stepfather, Keith. And uh, Keith was on the front steps of our little home in Bramalee, Ontario. And we had just sold everything. We were down to two trunks of belongings. And uh, this was our last garage sale of selling everything we owned, everything we had. And I remember my stepfather on the front steps, Michael will remember this, and he was crying. He was upset. And uh, I, I went to him and I said, Keith, what is going on? And, and he said, well, you know, we prayed for your salvation, but we didn't pray for this. And, and uh, he was quite upset. And so we were just about, uh, we moved in with the family for a little bit before we had our flights uh, to uh, Germany as we went to study at Bible school in uh, Germany back in 1986. And so at that time we had two children and we packed up everything and left. And what you don't realize is that was a time for us uh, when the Bible school asked us to stay back for a year and work with our pastor because we were just new believers, that we faced a lot of opposition. We faced a lot of spiritual warfare. We spent most of our Sundays at an altar. I'll tell you that. And there's nothing wrong with that if you spend every Sunday at an altar of prayer. Uh, and, and so we spent a lot of Sundays at the altar, and the enemy would say to me, you can't go again today. They're going to think, what's wrong with you? You're going every Sunday to the altar for prayer. And, uh, but the other thing that we faced was opposition. We faced opposition from those who were closest to us those in our family, those in our church family. And the amazing thing is we are here where we are today in ministry, and many of you know our national right, leader, um, Ian Fitzpatrick, was our pastor. He was the only person in that journey that we heard words of encouragement, that he was in our corner with us, because everyone else thought we were crazy. 
Well, Jesus in our passage today faces opposition, doesn't he? And you know, we talked last week that they were up on a mountain, right? The hills, the mountains. It was like we talk about retreats, right? We're up on the mountain. Well, what happens at any retreat? You come down to the valley. You come back to reality. And so we see the mountain retreat is over. And now the crowds have gathered in the home of Jesus. And the disciples and those that are wanting to learn from him are around him. And we're told, as we mentioned before, they're now so busy and the crowds are pressing in that they don't even have time to eat, our passage tells us. What is opposition? Well, opposition is resistance, right? It's dissent. It's expressed in actions. Uh, It is expressed in an argument. We know some other words, hostility, resistance, animosity, defiance. You can have all kinds of words for it. I, I keep chuckling with this because when we went to Pastor Mike's hometown uh, in Italy, a little town in the south of Italy for the first time, and, and, and we got to meet people, and this uh, elderly gentleman came up, and I believe he was a cousin uh, of the family, distant cousin of the family. Everybody's a cousin of the family. And uh, he was asking about us and so happy we were in the small town. And then he asked us why we were there and what we were doing in Europe. And so we're sharing our faith uh, to this person. And he literally stood stiff, turned himself around, and walked to the other side of the road as if we didn't even exist. And I kind of chuckle about that, but that's just the reality. Uh, sometimes of the animosity, the hostility that we can find. And, and I raise this question today, have you ever faced hostility because of your faith? Now, I'm not talking just hostility because someone doesn't like you <laughs> or doesn't like what you said. I'm talking specifically today hostility, opposition because of your faith in Jesus Christ. We are kind of living in those days. We're kind of shocked by it that we're seeing more and more of that, aren't we? And so we see that Jesus is opposed. Don't know what's happening here today. It's not moving, so thanks for your help. Uh, Jesus, first of all, we see is opposed by his family, those closest to him. Verse 20 to 22, and then again you'll see it pick up in verses 31 to 35, the end of our passage today. So what's happened is uh, Mark is telling us they were thinking about they were going to go and apprehend Jesus, and then the end verses show us that they've actually arrived and what happens there. And so Jesus' family are struggling To make sense of it all, clearly at this point in their journey, they don't believe Jesus' claims. What he has said about, you know, for them, they've got to make a, they've got to have a family meeting, an intervention. And they're having a conversation and they're trying to figure out, like, what is going on here? And so the solution they come to, the only solution they can come to is what? He's crazy. Does your family ever think you're crazy? (laughs) He's gone mad. He's lost his marbles. He's out of his mind. And so the next slide, please, Edward. We have our scripture there. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he had his disciples were not even able to eat. And here it is. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And so Jesus now has become this public spectacle. He is embarrassing his family. See, that sounds to me like teenagers. Have you ever been embarrassed by your family? (laughs) Yeah, I remember those days. Oh, you're so embarrassing, Dad, or you're so embarrassing, Mom. 
And so they're embarrassed now by this son, by this brother. And so they're trying to think, what are they going to do? And so why do they think that Jesus is crazy? Well, he left home. He left a good-paying job and a good-paying profession. He's in the business of carpentry, and he walks away from that. He's now opposing the orthodox leaders of the day, and you never do that. That is so dangerous and risky. And then to make the best of it, as we talked last time, he has a band of what? Misfits. He has people that you wouldn't even want to be seen with, associated with, as his followers. And he doesn't even seem to care what people are saying and what people are thinking. So clearly, he has lost his mind. He's making a fool of himself, and it needs to be stopped. Matthew warned us that a man's foes will be of his own household, he said, in 10, Jesus said, in 1036. A man's foes will be those of his own household. So Jesus' family now arrives later, as we see in verse 31. They're standing outside. If you notice that, Mark is emphasizing outside. So Mark is now going to start doing this dualistic picture of there are those that are insiders and there are those that are outsiders. And so Mark is showing us in this picture, and he's emphasizing it here, that those disciples that are around Jesus' feet are now insiders, but even Jesus' family is on the outside. Next slide. This is how Jesus responds to his family. Answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Next slide. This is shocking. This is still shocking to us today. But it was so shocking to Jesus' audience in that day. This is Jewish culture, and the family bond is the strongest bond of all. It's held at the highest. And so children live close to their parents, often in the same house. They work the same profession. Man, that's sounding a little close to home, isn't it, for some? They shared everything in common, and loyalty to the family was how you lived out your faith as a Jew. Next to being faithful to God, you were to be faithful to your family. Well, after all, there was a commandment, right? Honor thy father and thy mother. And so family came first. Family solidarity was right up there in importance with observing the Sabbath and all the food laws and all the signs of Jewish identity. Family was it. And right in the midst of that, Jesus says the shocking statements that just cuts through these traditional structures and just says no. But he says there's this beautiful promise. Those who do God's will, they are now called Jesus's brothers, sister, and mother. So what is happening here? You are not born into, hello, you are not born into the family of God. You are born from above, born anew into the family of God. 
Now, it's great that you have grandparents. It's great that you have generations that have attended a church and you've heard the word of God and, and you've listened in Sunday school and you've been a part of EBS and you, and, and you knew about camp. All those things are wonderful. Those are wonderful vehicles that God teaches his truth and challenges people. But ultimately, now it's about doing the will of God. It's not about who your parent or your grandparents been. It's not about how many generations they're in a church if you just walked into the door for the first time. See, all of that which we think is so important is about our beautiful Christian heritage and praise God for it. I have it too. But that's not what saves me. That's what leads me to the feet of Jesus. But that's not what saves me. See, we're coming to a place here now where Jesus is saying, it is the ones who are obedient who do the will of God now that are my family. And so in the midst of this, Jesus is showing us that God is building a new family called the family of God. God is starting this new family. It's a holy one. And he's doing it without regard for ordinary human family bonds. It's a strange phenomenon. Sometimes you can find yourself closer to brothers and sisters in Christ than you can your own siblings. That's a strange phenomenon, but it's a reality. I know I personally have found it. That sometimes I can be closer to a brother and sister in Christ than I can my own siblings. Because we have something in common. We serve the same Lord. And there is something that comes in that wonderful, we sing that chorus, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. What are we singing about? A Sunday morning only hour and a half? We are singing about a bond, a union, a love, a compassion, a unity that is only brought through Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so Jesus challenges us here in this passage about blood relationships must take second place. This is a strong statement to the new family of God that he is creating. I'll say it again. Jesus challenges that blood relationships must take a second place to the new family of faith that Christ is creating. You know what I say to that? Ouch. Right? Ouch. I'm going to say to you, don't shoot the messenger this morning. That's a struggle. Now, now God is telling us to appreciate our families, to love our families, to pray for our families, to witness to our families. Hear me right. But there are places in Scripture where Jesus will challenge us where our loyalties stand. And our first loyalty must be to Christ and the family of God. And if our loyalties get messed up, the Holy Spirit is going to keep challenging us. And the Word of God is going to keep challenging us. Where do your loyalties stand? Am I first in your life? And so we see here that Jesus is doing this shocking thing, and it's still shocking for us because we love our families, and yes, they are very, very important to us, but Jesus is saying here the kingdom of God will inevitably produce tension at times with your other loyalties. And in those other loyalties, you need to be prepared that you're going to follow me first, 
And if you follow me first, you can be sure there's going to be sometimes opposition, hostility, and misunderstanding, and probably from the people you're closest to. That's where the challenges will come if we're going to be obedient to Christ. Our family, you know, we came to faith and we were all new in faith, a young family at that time, as we said, two children at that time, were attending the Mississauga Bethel Church where we received our call. And uh, we're now, you know, every Sunday, uh, like Italian, good Italian, and I know I'm going to touch on a few things here for people. Uh, every Sunday, like a good Italian family, you went to your mama's house, and guess what she did? <laughs> She's cooking up a storm. And she's been cooking probably all morning. Unless she's making her lasagna, then she got up at midnight to start making lasagna for you. So that by the time you get there, everything's ready. The banquet is all, and all the family. Isn't it wonderful when all the family can gather around the table? And all the family gathers around the table every Sunday. Here's the problem. Lunch is at noon. We're not out of our church probably to about 12.30. It takes us a good 20 minutes to half an hour to get there. So guess what time we show up at the house? One o'clock. But lunch is at noon. We're all here at noon. We've done this for years. This is the family, right? Family unspoken rule. Every Sunday, kids, grandkids, all there. Noon! And we're like... Well, that's fine, but we're now people of faith, and we worship the Lord, and when we're done worship, we'll be there at one. And, and so it meant that the family then ate without us, and we came in and ate the leftovers. <laughs> but when I'm bringing that up, it sounds kind of comical, but we would have that discussion almost every Sunday. Lunch was at noon. You're here at one. Why weren't you here at noon? And we would have to say, you know what? And we'd say it all over again. We're in church. <laughs> we worship the Lord. And after we're finished worship, we'll be here. You go ahead and eat with us at noon. We'll be here at one o'clock. We're okay with leftovers because even his mama's leftovers were good. But that's just the reality in our life as new believers. It sounds kind of comical now, but it was. It was a battle every week. And so there has to become this reality that at times when we are loyal to Christ and the kingdom of God and we are part of this new family, sometimes this is going to happen with those who are now the outsiders who do not understand why we make the commitments, why we make the sacrifices that we do. But I want to tell you something about Jesus's family. Do you know what's so wonderful? At this play time, there's ignorance, there's misunderstanding. They don't get it. They think crazy, uh, crazy Jesus. They think the, the son, the brother's gone mad and they need to go and apprehend him. But Jesus is standing, of course, firm and they're the ones who need to change. It won't be Jesus that will change. They will change. Hallelujah. And we know through church history that a lot of the family of Jesus comes to faith. 
And, and we know, for example, Ephesus, uh, if you've ever had the pro, uh, opportunity to go to Ephesus, which I have, there is the house of Mary. And so we know that John, that after John was told at the cross, this is your mother, and mother, this is your son, that he cared for Mary, and John went to Ephesus, and Mary was brought with John to Ephesus. And Mary would sit there and teach about Jesus. I can't help, when I was there, I couldn't help to think, what is it like to be in a church where you have Mary there talking about Jesus? You have Mary talking about his childhood and all of those wonderful stories. And then we know that James became the actual leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so we're not sure about all the rest. But there was a point where even Jesus' family comes to a place of faith. And I want to challenge you today. It is when you keep Christ and your loyalty to Christ here that there's hope for your family there. Because the moment we let this slide, guess who's watching? Guess who's watching? And I've seen it. The families are watching where our loyalties lie. And so now, next slide please, now we see that, okay, so Jesus is opposed by his family, but now there's the opposition of the teachers of the law. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Now, the scribes were your legal officials. They were the ones who looked at the law and interpreted the law and were copiers of the law, and they were important leaders in Jerusalem. And so we know, we talked about Jesus has left Jerusalem because opposition has started. They're wanting to kill him. I've never had anyone yet want to kill me, but Jesus is facing opposition so hard that they're wanting to kill him. And so he leaves Jerusalem, and he goes down, and now we know he's down by the Sea of Galilee. And as he's down by the Sea of Galilee, guess who comes from Jerusalem? <laughs> the scribes. And the scribes now have traveled over 100 kilometers to confront Jesus. So we're talking by foot, that probably would be a five-day journey or so, and five days back. That's how they are determined they're going to stop Jesus and what he's doing. And so now they come, and they don't, you know, just say, well, this guy's mad, this guy's crazy. What are they saying? They're accusing him of practicing black magic, that he's possessed by an evil spirit, and that he's not just possessed by any evil spirit, but he is possessed by the arch demon, Beelzebub. Now imagine, what an insult to our Lord. I think the ultimate insult. I wonder if you've ever been insulted. Have you ever been insulted for the cause of Christ? I know what I would tend to do. <laughs> if we're not careful, we become reactionary, don't we? But here we see that Jesus isn't reactionary. Jesus decides to take it as a teaching moment, and he preaches and shares his first parable. And you'll see that Jesus responds to them. He says the defeat of the demons did not show that he had alliance with Satan. The actual defeat of the demons show quite the opposite, that Satan's defenses have been breached. A stronger person has arrived. The defeat of Satan has begun. Next slide. 
And so we see in our scripture, and the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, he had Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And verse 27, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first time him up and then he can plunder the strong man's house see Jesus is throwing out their logic their logic is illogical it doesn't even make sense here he's saying that that that, that Satan why would Satan cast out demons it doesn't even make sense actually the opposite is true Jesus actions are an assault against Satan he is the strong man he is the stronger man who has come John the Baptist said that there was one who was coming, someone stronger than me, he said. At the beginning, we saw that in chapter 1, verse 7. And so now Jesus is the stronger one who has won the initial victory. He has won the initial victory because he came through the temptation. Remember, after his baptism, he was tempted and he came full force out into his ministry with the recognition that God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus starts his ministry, and so he won the victory in that moment, and he continues to win the victory. And so Jesus' healings and exorcisms are signs that God's kingdom is breaking into the kingdom of darkness that has held people captive, that has, has, it has that kingdom of darkness on the run, and people are being set free. And it's going on even more so today that he has won the ultimate victory. See, a kingdom split into two cannot last, and a house divided against itself cannot last. We don't have time today to go into that, because... We are to keep the unity at all costs. That's our calling as believers in Christ, whether that's in the church, whether that's in the community, whether that's in our family. Now here, put that two together. See the difference? I hold my loyalties to Christ and his kingdom, and I have to set a standard. But in the midst of that, I try to keep the unity at all costs. Because when something is divided, it cannot stand. The next slide. And then Jesus gives a strong warning, verses 28 to 30. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Christians for years have worried <laughs> Have I done the unpardonable sin? <laughs> it's something that goes around. Even when you bring the subject up, it gets a lot of discussion. But let's go back to the context. So important that you read it in the context. He said this because they were saying, who's the they? The scribes. He has an impure spirit. He is addressing this to them. Not to the insiders. He's addressing it to these outsiders. They looked incarnate love in the face and claimed that he was incarnation of Satan. How mistaken, how lost can someone be? We see it all the time, don't we? 
And so we see here the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is before Pentecost. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. But at this point, that hasn't happened yet. But the Holy Spirit was always the one who would lead people into truth. He is still the one today that leads people into the truth. Jesus is warning here, watch out for the hardening of heart. Refusal to believe, refusal to listen, refusal to respond as the Spirit and the Holy Spirit is coming and knocking and speaking and Jesus is standing before them in the flesh. We often sing that song, we brought it up before. What the prophets knew as mystery now lives in me. Imagine all what the prophets had prophesied about all that was ever spoken. There he is standing in their midst. And they're saying he's filled with the devil. You want to talk about a refusal to respond. They had, their hearts had become so hardened, they were incapable of recognizing the truth. They were so stubborn That evil now becomes good and good becomes evil. What does that sound like in our day? See, it's one thing to reject Jesus because you've never heard. It's another thing to reject Jesus because of ignorance. It's a whole other thing to attack the very power of why Jesus is doing what he's doing. And so there's no forgiveness because there's no sense of need. The only way to forgiveness is repentance. That is the only vehicle to forgiveness is repentance. You see, in the light of Jesus, when we normally look at Jesus, when we hear the words of God's truth, when we see how worthy and how awesome and how majestic he is, I see my own unworthiness. I see my own failing. I see my own regrets. And I see my own sins. I'm just blown away by my unworthiness in light of how worthy he is. And in the midst of that, then I begin to say, woe is me. What shall I do? What hope is there for me? And see, I come to a place of repentance. I come to a place of brokenness. I come to a place of sorrow. Have you ever had godly sorrow over your sin? Have you ever had godly sorrow over your condition outside of Christ? And so I'm broken, and I know that I, ha- I can't fix it. I can't fix it. No one else can fix it. Who can fix it? Oh, what a wretched man that I am. What a wretched woman that I am. And in the midst of that, I begin to repent. And I ask for what? Forgiveness. His forgiveness. See, I know that as I look at the cross, he paid the price once and for all, for all to be forgiven. Everyone has been forgiven. Christ has said, nailed to the cross, I forgave you. I have forgiven you. He paid the price once and for all, for all of humanity until the Father tarries. He's paid the price. But now I have to want what he has done for me. I have to see my own wretchedness, my own sin. I need to repent of it. And now I say, Lord, I accept your forgiveness. But once a person has got themselves into such a routine of refusing to listen listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, their hearts become hardened, calloused, 
They can't see Jesus as anything worthy. They don't see him as majestic. They don't see him as lovely. And so there is nothing that happens in the heart. The heart is cold. They're not moved. They don't care about their sin. They don't even care about his forgiveness. There's no conviction of, uh, uh, of sin. There's no uh, presence of the Holy Spirit there because they haven't welcomed him. They're not open to what God wants to do. They have shunned the actual gift that Christ has done, and they have shunned what the Holy Spirit is trying to do. So there is no repentance, no conviction, no repentance. Therefore, what? No forgiveness. My friends, that's the sin against the Holy Spirit. And, and I don't believe this is, I don't believe this is what this is talking about for us, but just to apply it to us as a church, those of us who are insiders, be very careful when you're not obedient to the Holy Spirit. Because the tendency is there's a hardening of heart that happens. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that we believe as I've turned to Christ and have been forgiven, at any point I can turn my back to Christ. And we talked about what does that look like? Does that happen in a day? Does that happen in a week? Does that happen in a year that I used to follow Christ? I used to love the family of God and now I, I'm not anywhere. I don't know how that happens, but I do know it starts. And I've seen it in people's lives that when the Holy Spirit is prompting, people don't want to listen and they begin to refuse. And they're not obedient to what the Spirit is saying. This is much deeper than that. I, I want to be obedient to the move of the Holy Spirit. This is people who just are so spiritually now deadened to Christ that he's standing before them and they're calling him Beelzebub. Sad, isn't it? Bengal said, all other sins are human, but this sin is satanic. It is unforgivable because they refuse to repent. This is what should put us on our knees as a church. As we pray for people. As we pray for those that have heard the message, heard the message, heard the message, heard the message. And have cold hearts. We know it's the Lord's will that what? None should perish. That's why Jesus didn't even come out brash to them. He came out with a story trying to reach them, telling a parable, hoping that somewhere there would be a crack, an opening that the Holy Spirit could come in. We have to leave that with the Lord. So as we bring this to a conclusion today, uh, if you could do the next slide. Jesus faced opposition. Outright hostility from the scribes, misunderstanding, well-meaning skepticism from Jesus' family. He faced opposition. But the truth this morning is if you are faithful to Christ, at some point in your Christian journey, you're going to face it too. And the question is, are you going to stand firm, nail your colors to the mass, and let people know who you are and whose you are and why you follow Christ? Or will you submit to all that opposition, that hostility? I often get a picture when I'm praying, especially even through um, COVID, of the church when I pray for the church. You know what I see the church? It's kind of a strange prayer. I see the church all huddled up in that back corner, trying to hide and saying, well, we'll just wait till this all passes over. 
as if that's our calling as a church. Lord, here's my talent. I buried it. I kept it for you. And now when you come, oh, here it is, Lord. I've kept it. (laughs) Is that our calling as the church of Jesus Christ during COVID? I don't believe so. I believe it's a time. I don't think we're called to be brash, rude, or obnoxious, but I do think it's a time to take a stand and to stand up for who we are and whose we are. And do we allow ourselves to show this world where my loyalty stands? My loyalty stands to Christ, even if it's not politically correct, even if it's not popular, even if it means opposition, and even as brothers and sisters around the globe today are even facing persecution. That's what we're called to. I told you it's not a a great message that people say amen to. I close with this. Next slide. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Good old John Wesley. Now, John Wesley, right, is the founder of Methodism. He was an Anglican priest. He never converted from being an Anglican priest. That's what he died, an Anglican priest. But because of the revival and the renewal that he was trying to bring into the Anglican church, you need to listen to the story now as we bring this to a close. As he's trying to bring renewal into the church, in, in the Anglican church, because of his followers being becoming very methodical in their faith, this new movement births called Methodism. Actually, we get our roots as the Church of the Nazarene in Methodism, because that's what our founder was, a Methodist preacher. And so John Wesley's preaching was unnerving to many of the ministers and laity who heard him. These listeners were unsettled by his zeal, passion, and were challenged by his sometimes condemning and convicting words because his style and message offended so many churches. They were close to him, and so he began preaching in the fields and the marketplaces, often quite near the churches that had shut their doors to him. Most town markets had a cross. You'll see that in the picture. And so that cross was put in the town market so whoever conducted business would know that Christ was watching. And that would be the very place that John Wesley, shunned from the church, thrown out of the church, he would go there to preach on the stairs near these crosses. And he would begin to preach about the need for salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the waking of God in somebody's spirit. And the, and the ministers and laity were offended by his sermons, and they were so offended by their, his sermons, they paid and hired thugs and rabble-rousers to disturb him. During 19 years of sermons, John was pelted with rotten tomatoes, manure. Can you imagine preaching and manure being thrown at you? Stones were thrown at him, and he refused to give up. In every crowd, though, there were those that Jess Wesley would say were moved. He reported that frequently those who came in like lions to devour him left like lambs. And many found their own souls awakened by the Spirit of God through his preaching. For 19 years, this was Wesley's weekly, even daily experience. I've read about Wesley that at one point, he wasn't uh, having any uh, hostility towards him, any persecution, and he would pray for persecution because he felt that the move of God was slowing down. He was dragged before magistrates, beaten with fists. I think of the Apostle Paul when I hear this. Pumbled with rocks. Homes where he stayed were set afire. See if you want to have the uh, evangelist come in and stay with you. 
<laughs> How discouraging it must have been, but he refused to give up, and his perseverance in the face of opposition made all the difference. John Wesley was harassed. He was lampooned by thousands. Surely he felt like quitting. Ever feel like quitting? But he refused. What if he had stopped in 1738 when church after church closed their doors to him? Well, I know one thing. There wouldn't have been a great revival in England. There wouldn't have been the Methodist movement, and there definitely would not be the Church of the Nazarene today. Wesley's perseverance made possible the great revival led by these Methodists around the world. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I have this as the benediction, but I'll say it here as well. John 15, Jesus promises, in this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties. What does he say? But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. Lord, we surrender your word to you today that it has fallen on good soil and has produced some fruit. Challenge us in our loyalties. You know we love our families. You know how dear they are to us. But you know if, if our loyalty to our earthly family is getting in the way of our loyalty to you and the loyalty of the family of God. Lord, some of us here have faced persecution because of family. Some today are still facing persecution from family, misunderstandings, and it's difficult, oh God, to have someone turn their back on you someone who shows no care and appreciation, and all you've wanted to do is love them and pray for them and pray that they come to know Jesus. God, help us to realize that there is an evil force out there that is trying to stop your children from witnessing, that's trying to stop the church from moving forward, that is opposing the very work of God. God, it's our way often to run and hide or to become reactionary, I pray today that you would help us to be unified as a church and stand. Just stand. We know that Ephesians tells us to put on the full armor of God, and we think that means because we have to fight, but that word says what we do is we are fully protected, and then we stand. You have fought the battle, and you continue to fight our battles for us. We stand today in your victory. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Won't you stand with us as we sing our closing song?